This is episode 41 of Utah in the Weeds. And my name is Chris Hollifield. And I'm Tim Pickett. I mean, I kind of wanted to just jump in because I'm so excited about our guest today. This is the podcast for cannabis culture in Utah, really. And cannabis culture is a medical, it's it's really a medical culture because of the, you know, the Utah Medical Cannabis Program. And today we have really who I consider the workhorse of the whole program, Katie Barber. She works for the Department of Health. And like, what's your official title, Katie? My official title is Health Program Specialist. But I run the whole program. But I do a lot of things at the program. Yeah. All right, all right. Team effort. Okay. Yeah, I'm excited about this, Chris. Um, where Where do you want to start with her? Because, I mean, I was looking here over everything she's got going on there. I mean, there is so much that we could talk about. I'm interested in maybe finding out how you came to be with the Department of Health in this, in the program? Yeah, that is a great question. I joined the program in October of 2019. And I joined them after spending three years in retail pharmacy, and additionally working in harm reduction. So this type of alternative treatments, uh, helping Utah's public in a non-traditional way, sort of, was really of interest to me. Um, My other background, my educational background is health policy and communication and health and science communication. So this job was perfect. The program was just starting out. It was in a field that I wanted to be in, especially in a beginning field in Utah, like it is. And it was an opportunity not to just interface with Utah's public, but to help Utah's public in this, this new way. So that's how long I've been there. That's why I got involved. And it's been a wild ride. Now, are you a medical cannabis user yourself, or uh, what's your relationship with cannabis? I'm not a patient, uh, but I have family members who have benefited from it. So, and Very every cool. day I hear amazing stories from our patients. So, it's not out of the realm of possibility for me, that's for sure. So, you are open to it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even though there's a lot of you know research that needs to be done mm-hmm. on it, just the anecdotal evidence to me is really compelling for something as simple as like a backache to debilitating arthritis. Um, my family members have benefited from it because they have arthritis. So it's I've watched people flourish before my eyes. This is part of being in this program and, and from hearing how it benefits people. So it's hard it's hard to deny that there's something to it, even though it's not, you know, FDA regulated. It's hard to deny that there's not something to this. Yeah, for sure. Do you feel like working I mean, like, did you have a pretty good knowledge of cannabis before you started with the Department of Health? No, I really didn't have any knowledge of cannabis. That really all started, you know, when I joined in 2019, learning about it. And it's been it's been really fascinating. I have I've approached it more from a policy perspective. I've been fortunate enough to be part of our compassionate use board and help out with our cannabinoid product board. So I, I get to learn the research that's going on around the country, around the, the world. So, yeah, I didn't know anything about it until I joined, really. Did you grow up here in Utah? Yeah, I'm born and raised in Utah. Went to the U and stayed here. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I I mean, I am too. And we're, I think this perspective of, you know, so is rich. And so many people that are involved in the program are really just homegrown, right? So there are people in Utah who are open-minded, apparently, who, who were born here and raised here. Yeah, I mean, we had, our projections were much lower by the end of the year than 
we hit. So we far exceeded expectations for patient, for cardholders. And the interest has been way higher than we anticipated, even for providers, just people who want to find out more. Maybe they want to seek treatment for their family member. They're looking into how much research is out there, what the Department of Health can provide, which is a lot. We have a lot of resources. And I think it's caught on, especially because there was this initial interest. More and more people are talking about how it's benefiting them. So we kind of just see this domino effect, I think, of people who hear, hey, this worked for me, might work for you. And it is surprising because we are such a, Utah has, you know, certain cultural factors that prevent us from thinking about something that's not regulated. Typically, we are, we are much more of a by-the-books type of people, I'd say. So it has been awesome to see the growth and see people benefit from it. You guys have always been pretty, um, like in your communications, you've always been pretty positive about the fact that the program is doing better or, or growing bigger than you anticipated. Do you, so what was the original projection? Something like 16,000 in the beginning? I don't even think it was that much. I think it was closer towards 10,000, 8,000 cars by the end of the year. It wasn't that many. I, I thought I heard even 6,000. Yeah, I think we've almost about doubled that growth over our projections. Yeah, you're you're at over 30,000 legal users now? I can give you the updated number. We are between 18,000 and 18,500. Of legal card holding. Okay, so this is good news because there isn't anybody in the state who probably knows this number better than you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> so we've got a, co- a small team. So actually, one of our one of our teammates is the one that is pretty much approving all of these. It's a small team. So she's the one that really has seen all of these cards come through her through her desk. You know, I help patients along the way. And uh, but she really has been pushing through on these approvals. And we had such a, a wave leading up to the end of the year because of the law change. And so um, we saw about 2000 more just between November and December kick up. Wow. Okay. So um, just so everybody knows, I'm going to back up and I'm going to re- basically reintroduce you. You are part of a small team at the Utah Department of Health who specializes in cannabis and really the policy surrounding how to get a card, what the process is like through that EVS system, the electronic verification system, Who and you're really an expert in that system. Right. Yeah. And just to add to that, we facilitate the law. So we can suggest things about policy. And of course, we have the Utah Department of Health rule, but we are facilitating what the statute tells us to. So yes, that includes an electronic system that was mandated by the legislature. Everything had to be electronic for people to get cards. And that's what we do day in, day out. That's what our help desk is for, is helping people get their cards. And you know, occasionally telling people how the law works. People ask questions about that too. Do you flashback to March 1st, 2020, the day it all opened? We had um, card number one, you're right, on the podcast, David Sutherland. He's a, he's a friend of ours. And what was that like when this all opened up for, your, for you and your team? It's crazy. We've grown since then, so our team was even smaller at that time. But to watch everything, it really did come together on March 1st and March 2nd when the first pharmacy opened. Um, you know, it's the culmination of everything because there had been so much work done to create the software, make sure we were adhering to the statute, you trying to anticipate things that will make it easy for patients to get cards. And then 
Next thing you know, you're in there on a Saturday at the Department of Health playing help desk for all of these patients that want their cards on day one. But that's great. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better situation where you have people that genuinely are seeking alternative treatment and you're there to help them. There's no better feeling than that. So it was wild and it continues to be wild, but it's amazing. And then COVID happened on top of it. So I'm sure that didn't really help. Right. That has been, that's been challenging for, you know, everybody, especially the Department of Health. And it is strange. (laughs) I, I get the most, you know, interaction I get now is with patients. And then also happening to talk to people like Tim or one of the pharmacists at the pharmacies. And they tell me these situations where patients are benefiting from it because you kind of, you know, after you're doing so much every single day to just see people's name on paper or help write rule or whatever you're doing for the day. And you don't, you don't really get to see that connection at the end where somebody got help, but those are the moments where you really do remember, Oh, this is, this has an impact. These are just, they're not not just numbers. They are patients and they're, they're being benefited by this. So Katie, talk to us about some of the changes that are occurring in the program starting January 1st, 2021, because I think our listeners are really interested in that. Not everybody knows. I mean, there's a lot of patients on my, on my list that were seen a long time ago who never got their card at all. And still, you know, they have this letter. What's right. So what are the yeah. changes? It's, it's that letter. So previously patients were able to purchase at the pharmacies using a letter. Part of the intent of the legislature, I think was to allow people who had been possessing product um, out of state and might not have been able to, to get it in state due to lack of availability. They wrote into the law that these people could purchase with a letter at these pharmacies. That would be their proof of being able to possess in Utah. So that went away on December 31st. So if you had a letter, you need a card now. If you have product from somewhere not in Utah, you're illegally possessing. So that's the major change there. Why couldn't you just keep the letter program going if it was working? Why why not just let people keep using letters? Well, one big reason I would imagine is that this helps us track better. So whenever you have a system that's not as manual, it's just going to have more flaws. Um, and that's actually part of the Controlled Substances Act that it's up until January 1st of 2021 that somebody can possess something with just a letter or proof of their provider being able to prescribe it. It'd been, they would be able to possess a letter. I need to cite, I need to actually think of what the law says. They would be able to possess medical cannabis um, as long as their provider could attest that the provider wanted them to be using it. So that took the form of a letter that got turned into letters and now, and then people were able to purchase. And it just becomes a lot easier to track, to manage, to, um, in my opinion, it's better for care over time. If you've got a system where the provider can see what the patient is getting, um, that's not something that happens now with the letter process. So I think it's a combination of it want, the legislature wants this to be regulated. We want to be able to track it. We still want people to have access to it. Um, that was the way of making people have access to it, letting people have access to it for as long as possible and giving them time to convert to a, a card. Because in the beginning, wasn't it like when, when this first launched, I think it was going to be cards from the very beginning, right? Like letters weren't going to work the entire year, but then there were like problems with the EVS, if I'm not mistaken. Is that kind of why that changed or or what was the reason for that change? It's possible that patient advocacy groups really pushed for an easier way for patients to access medical cannabis. Possible. Um, It's possible that that's what they wanted. I love talking to Uh, you because you're like, we have no position. 
Okay. We have okay. No, I get, I get it. No I get it. Yeah. I gotcha. We didn't write the law as, as I know a lot of people think we do, but we didn't. So obviously we want patients to be able to access cards as easily as possible. Yeah. When you have a new program, you know, it, it was, it had a, a way higher, um, uh, interest. Yeah. There was way more interest, yeah. um, at the very beginning. And I think a lot of patients reported back to these advocacy groups, or maybe it was their, to their senators and legis- uh, representatives that they weren't able to access. We have never been able to confirm that there was some sort of delay on our end. But then you also had issues at the very outset with just general product availability. So that that could have been another reason that the second bill was passed to allow uh, patients to purchase with the letter. But it, it didn't have anything to do with like a, it wasn't a software related issue. I gotcha. The software that we used now, the software that we use now is the software that we used then. And it's pretty close to the same, it's pretty close to the same process to register, but there, I remember in the beginning, I mean, we were, we were able to access the EVS system all the way through. In fact, I was, I'll be honest, I was kind of one of the people that was not very pro, you know, expanding this letter program. I thought, you know, the EVS system seems to work. It was only taking about a day or in some cases, less than that to get somebody through. But there certainly was a lot of, um, well, there was a lot of talk around, you know, the EVS system is totally broken and bogus and and that sort of thing. Do you feel like um, now that you have no letters, uh, are you are you seeing this week, I guess, would be your only, you know, the only time frame? Are you seeing a lot of, like, are you getting a lot more calls from people and, and providers Having to act, having to now learn this new system. Well, one of the great things was that part of the law that was passed required that certain people that had a, a role in patients accessing medical cannabis educated the patients about getting a card. So personally, I think we saw more interest before the end of the year because more patients actually knew that they did need that there was an expiration date to their letters. So I think we're kind of over that hump actually. For just personally, that's what I think for how many people are kind of mass emailing calling because we did have, we were backlogged and we kind of still continue to be backlogged with requests of people just wanting to know how to get a card. Um, We'll often get language to our email or over the phone about, I need to convert to a card from my letter. And it's kind of, it's just kind of interesting because the letter process again was born out of just something that turned into a standard that was never the law and became law. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, totally. So how long right now are you out? Because the law says that we can wait up to 15 days, but I've never seen anybody wait 15 days. How long does it take once the approval, once the QMP approves that in the system, how, how long is the state usually out? It'll be less than 15 days. That's our law. That's the law. That's going to be the max amount of time somebody has to wait. And our turnaround time is usually much faster. I would say within three days, people have their cards. That's a long time compared to our typical turnaround. How many cards are you issuing? um, Are you approving about a week now? Let's see. I'd say an average, a good average for the month is 2000. So that would help break it down by week there. It it varies. How does it vary? It's always fascinating to me that it varies so much. Does it vary with COVID? Like the appointments or cards that, that, that it varies. You know, healthcare doesn't really vary. Chronic pain doesn't really vary, but for some reason there's, you know, 600 this week and only 200 next week. Right. Yeah. 
does does COVID affect the the your your workload? I think as, when the lockdown first started, it especially did. We had people that were kind of in limbo with treatment just in general for their conditions. And we had a lot of interest and we still continue to get interest from providers, especially who would like the opportunity to to consult patients either at home or uh, or not by not at home. They want to consult patients with telehealth or telemedicine and they're not able to because the law just says they have to meet in person. So I do think that that did have an impact because that meant the offices like yours, Tim, they were just reorganizing to accommodate these people. And, yeah. you know, when you have to factor in social distancing and knowing who's in and out of your door, it becomes a lot harder to treat people, whether it's, you know, any appointment, any regular appointment for your treatment, it just turns into something different. Do you deny, like, do you know the percentage or the the numbers of people who get denied? So really the only population of patients that would get denied are those that are in the compassionate use board group. If we don't have enough information about a, a patient's certification for medical cannabis use in the EVS, they will be marked incomplete. If we don't get that information, it simply expires after 30 days with no change. And most people get something changed within 30 days. So we don't have a lot of actual denials at all. Even in the Compassionate Use Board, we don't. There's only been a few. How many people have gone through the Compassionate Use Board? Well, 100. It is a So we've had 118 people approved through the Compassionate Use Board. And I would say only a few more would have been denied. So that gives you an idea of how many people uh, have actually come through the queue. And aren't you part of the Compassionate Use Board? Yes. Yeah, I do help uh, do everything with the Compassionate Use Board. So I organize the meetings. I take the minutes. I do the audio. I help providers I was navigate the medical records. Like for our listeners, like let's say they're interested in approaching the Compassionate Use Board. Do you have any suggestions or tips or words of advice that might help their situation? Absolutely. So our most successful petitioners will have submitted as much information as they can about their diagnosis from their provider. So the more we have about you, um, it could just, you could write letters too about why you believe that you should be using medical cannabis. You can include uh, research about your diagnosis that we can refer to, but the most, the, the strongest petitions have the most information about the patient and what their diagnosis is. So whether that's x-rays or consults over time, um, documentation from multiple providers might be needed. That's one thing that really does help patients. If we know, for example, that your primary care physician is endorsing your medical cannabis treatment, or at least has been consulted about your medical cannabis treatment, that helps. You know, if a specialist that you go to knows that you want to seek medical cannabis treatment and you make that known to the board through your petition, that will help. Interesting. Okay, so I have a little bit more specific question and I'll be I'll be careful here. If if your patient um you know, if a patient is denied on the compassionate use board, is it typically there's only been a few denials. Um a couple of them have come from from our group and I think that it's because for some reason people refer patients that are underage to to me specifically, even other so-called, you know, um, if you listen to representative ward, so-called pot clinics, uh, <laughs> will refer, will refer their, um, their compassionate use board cases to, to me personally, because they know that I know about the compassionate use board and we have helped a few patients, um, navigate that process. 
in the denial, um, you know, there's only been a couple of them, but is it usually something like, you know, that continuity of care between providers seems to have come up more recently as, as kind of an issue that the Compassionate Use Board is considering? You're dead on. Yeah. So it's, it, I have multiple things to say this, but the first is it's a, it's a process that's in its growth phase and only, you know, I've been with it since the beginning and we've had it actually a nurse transition out and a nurse transition in that supports the board. We are still in the process of developing the policies for this board, even like, what are our bylaws? What are we going to look for? Are we going to have some sort of expedited way for getting these done if we've seen this type of case before? But you bring up a really good point about continuity of care. So like I mentioned, I probably should have mentioned more in depth. I say primary care physician or somebody like a a specialist that's treating you. What you'll have, yes, are these patients that haven't had the conversation with their primary care physician yet about medical cannabis or with their specialist, you know, somebody who's treating them for their condition about for medical cannabis because they assume that they're not going to endorse treatment with medical cannabis. So they do seek a different provider that has more experience with the Compassionate Use Board petition process. So if communication happens between everybody, whether that's with a clinic like yours or you know, it's a different situation with a different clinic, that's going to help. We do like to see on the board continuity of care that will help your petition just because communication is key and in, in treating you and your health and maintaining your health. So that's why it's going to help to communicate between providers for sure. This is good to know too, that the, um, it sounds like the compassionate use board in the beginning kind of had this idea and that idea is evolving because, for example, in Florida, you know, if you have a non-approved condition, you know, there's a there's essentially a form that you just fill out, send to the board, and they approve it. Just because it's so common, um, and they have established kind of this this workflow. Do you see that ever happening with the Compassionate Use Board, or do you think that'll take maybe years to develop? Oh, I definitely think that could happen. You know, we're setting precedents every time we hold me- hold meetings, so. I, I could totally see that happening in the future where it's more of a, an automatic petition. You barely even have to do anything to petition. And by barely, I mean, as long as you have the documentation, if we've seen the same type of case, we are going to be more likely to, to push that case through without as much of a, as much scrutiny, I would say. But the patient does have to do a little bit of work to get to that point. And it will be left up to the board, you know, if that's what they decide. One of the other things is as we grow, we're simply going to have more petitions. Are we going to be able to take more time to review a case? Will time factor into it? What are we going to do to accommodate more cases? Does it mean more meetings? You know, we're still literally answering those questions. So I do see that being a possibility down the line, but it's also a factor of what if the legislature has questions, then what if they make a law? That means they're going to enforce more time in the process or require more information in the process. It's just a weird balancing act that, of course, the department and the board can inform, but ultimately we don't have final say over. So I, I do see that being a possibility though. Yeah. The compassionate use board is kind of this, um, you know, it's this, uh, this hidden thing, I think amongst patients and, and people, even in the industry, even though I think that if we ask somebody like you, there doesn't seem to be a lot of transparency into the, to the compassionate use board yet. So hopefully that will change as time goes on and, you know, we'll get more transparency into the, to the system. Do you feel like 
the compassionate use board, I know we're, we're talking a lot about this, but do you feel like that board is becoming more friendly to cannabis or they're, they're pretty set in their opinions? So all of these board members had to have been, they had to affirm that they they would be willing to treat their own patients with medical cannabis, or at least they were open to the idea of using medical cannabis or else they wouldn't be on this board. That's just a requirement of being on the board. So over time to see how they work out, sometimes board members want to see that. They want to see progress over time. When in an environment where we don't have, you know, a double blind study to refer to, this is our closest thing to that really. Like these are patients we can even track over time. So they really do prioritize patient safety, considering what the outcomes will be and weighing benefit and risk. They're most concerned with that. So, I mean, I don't think it's a, it's a question of being friendly to cannabis. It's how can they best be part of a process that has integrity to maintain patient safety. And at the beginning of a process like that, they're, we're just going to want to take more time to consider what the effects will be. Speaking of data, you did a, you guys did a survey of a bunch of Utah patients. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did our first patient survey. Yeah. So that was sent to 4,000 patients in our system, just randomized patients. What was the survey? So the survey had questions about uh, their treatment. So some were open-ended questions like, how do you feel this benefited you? Some of them were on a scale of, you know, this to this. Have you seen a progression in your condition? Will you seek continued care in the Utah market? How do you think the prices are? What do you think about how prices are? Um, what do you think might happen as a result of medical cannabis prices in Utah? You could, they had the option to, to let us know where they thought um, they would go after being in the program once, you know, like, or, you know, we were just questioning them on, you know, their use before what they anticipate for the future, questions like that to help us gauge um, how patients are responding to to the program and then also to the treatment. Do you guys have anything to do with the pricing? You were mentioning the, sur- the, the survey has, you know, questions about pricing, and that's kind of a thing people are talking a lot about, you know, the, the, the higher prices here in Utah. And I was curious now how much you guys control that. Zero. Okay. There's no control over the prices whatsoever. And that was a decision from the legislature that could change too. We don't know. You guys just get that three bucks that they take at the pharmacies, I guess, right? Yeah. There's a $3 transaction fee on top of every purchase. Yeah. And that could be, you know, you could buy $400 with the product and you'd still only pay $3 to the department of health. And then our, our card prices are pretty low in, con- in comparison to other States too. Oh, absolutely. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Does the, um, the EVS system automatically, just a couple of things that um, we get questions about all the time. Does the EVS system automatically set my expiration date? Yeah. So the, the EVS system automatically gives initial patients a, a 90-day expiration date. Patients who renew after that will get a six months out expiration date. And that, uh, I, try, <laughs> I try to tell patients, that's your default setting. So a patient that looks closely at the law will notice that the providers actually have the ability to change that date if they want to. It, the law gives them the, the ability to limit the participation in the program if they choose, just kind of like writing a prescription for a 90-day supply versus a 30-day supply or seeing how the, the patient reacts to it and then prescribing more. Kind of like that. Obviously, these are not prescriptions, but I think that was kind of the intent. So that's that. that those are the default settings <laughs> for card validity. 
Are a lot of providers adjusting those dates? Not a lot. I think the more providers we have, the more we're going to see that happen, though. Um, Some providers like to have more control over patient treatment. So they want to see their patient in again, like some other prescriptions, some other very controlled prescriptions to see how they're reacting to it. So not a lot of them are doing that, but I just some some patients have issues with it. So I'd like to remind them that that's 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 changeable. Right. That it is an. I mean, we've used it a couple of times in in cases where really I need to I need to see this person back in three months because this is this is a very serious situation and you know we want to make sure that we keep up on the patient care opioids for example that's that's a every month visit for people and so I like to remind people that you know we we're definitely not to that point but the EVS system. It does the 90 day and then six months. It does another six months. Then it, it does it default to the annual? Yeah. The, the, the provider will actually be able to indicate that that person should have a card for a year after they've gone through those two renewal periods and once they've had their card for a year. So that's what you're describing, Tim, is having a card for a year is a requirement of the law. And then after that time, the provider can indicate that they can renew for a full year. I but the but the default is still going to be six months. No, it will be a year. Okay. They just have to have had their card for a year, and the system is smart enough to know when that happens. <laughs> Got it. It's it's uh, the you know the little technicalities of a program like this are they they're a burden to the patient in some ways. They're they're just kind of made up. It feels like in other ways, right? you know, kind of a balancing act, it feels like. Do you feel like the the Utah system is a pretty good balance of safety and access? I think it is. I personally think it is. Whenever you have a situation, I mean, this is not really a situation that has a precedent where you are taking a law, you're bringing it into a sphere where people can utilize it in a way that is not endorsed by the federal government. You want to also educate the patient as well as you can while enforcing the law. So how do we think about how, okay, so a patient acknowledges that they've read the law. They've acknowledged that they've read the law. How do they know what the law says about the renewal or whether or not their provider can change their renewal? I think there are ways in which our system could be improved. And I will say our system can be improved and we are making changes and that will be just a thing that happens forever and ever, but there are probably ways our system can be improved to kind of better balance that education versus enforcement or yeah, education versus enforcement for patients so that they know what they're complying with when they submit information and also why they're complying with it. Because I think that tediousness that you feel is a result of just not knowing that these are requirements of the law. So, or it could just mean that we need to um, spend more time uh, educating patients just in the real world, you know, actual communication efforts and getting out there and getting in front of the public. And of course, we're such a small team, it's it's hard to do that at this moment, which is why an opportunity like this to talk to you too is amazing because this is this is one of the few communication channels we have an opportunity to, to be in front of is people's ears. So yeah, that tediousness is probably just, it, it will be a balance act forever because it's requirements of the law. You were mentioning you don't have opportunities to get in people's ears. I mean, is there anything that you would like to say that you would make, that you want to make sure we talk about? Man, there's so many things that we'd like to tell the public about how easy it is to get a card. So 
it's a simple process. It really is. I would say one of the biggest hangups that patients have is that they'll go start the process and go about a third of the way in and assume they're done. So one giant thing I would recommend for everybody to do is just to read the instructions about getting your card before you even start the process, before you even find a provider, just read the instructions. And um, because a lot of people get that third of the way in, think they're done when they actually need to talk to their provider or find a provider. And they could have already done that, you know? So that's one of the things that I think patients can benefit from knowing. The other thing, the other big thing is that a lot of patients don't have a provider. So we get questions all the time about what a patient should do if they don't know where to even start to find a provider that can provide care for them or even approach their, their current provider about having a conversation about medical cannabis or they don't know whether their current provider will are if they're part of the program or if they will become a part of the program. So I always tell patients, you know, have that dialogue with your provider. See if they're going to be willing to enroll in the program. We always offer the opportunity to speak to your providers if you need that. Our nurse is happy to talk to anybody. Anybody on our team is happy to talk to one of your providers and just inform them about the process because it really is an easy process. And that's what we're emphasizing is it's not that difficult. Providers have to go through four hours of CE. So if there's any providers out there listening, it's four hours of CE and then a fee to the Department of Health, and then you're registered. And that means you can care for up to 275 patients. That means you could care for just one patient. But if you're interested in seeking just an alternative way of treating your patients, it's a possibility to consider for you. We would also, if any patients reach out asking about um, assistant finding low, assistance finding low-cost healthcare, we have resources for them too. So if fees are too high for certain patients, um, they can come to us and we can give them some resources about applying for a card in a way that's not going to take too much out of their pockets. I, I also like to remind patients that they, they, when they have conversations with their, their primary care physicians, those primary care physicians have the ability to bill their insurance for treatment. So if your physician or your specialist is open to it, just bill your insurance and then you don't have to pay an out-of-the-pocket, out-of-pocket fee to providers um, if you're not able to, perform, to um, pay for that. So those are a couple of things I would tell patients where they get stuck or they don't know what the next step is. Dialogue, ask us questions, read our instructions. It's an easy process. Communicate with your providers. And if they have any issues, they can reach out to our help desk. Um, we're available by email or by phone. And we have an also a, a really quick turnaround time there too. So if anybody needs help, we're happy to do it. And if, if any of your providers need help, happy to do it. That's what I do most of my time is helping providers through our software and going to clinics and helping them out with the software. So I, uh, yeah, I know it's difficult and the system is improving, but uh, we're there to help. So let us help you. So you actually will go out or, you know, somebody will call and say, Hey, I'm a provider. I need some help with the system. And you'll walk them through the whole process, learning how to certify a patient, learning what that looks like, what uh, renewal statuses are, things like that? Yeah, that's what I spent the most of my time. That's what I spend the most of my time doing right now. So even before COVID, we were you know, out doing presentations, educating the public and the providers about what the program means, what it's going to mean to be in it, um, how you become part of the program. And now that we have people that are in it, it's uh, yeah, troubleshooting for providers, teaching providers how to use the system, answering provider questions um, about the law, what do we require as the Department of Health, as part of recommendations, things like that. Um, yes, we do troubleshooting for the providers and teaching them how to use the system. And there are over four, 400 or 500 providers enrolled? 
yeah, we've got 560 as of last month. And the 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 goal was like like a hundred in the first year. You know what? I'm actually not sure what the goal for providers was. It, it, it was low. <laughs> it was low compared to what it is now. That's for sure. Do you, so? Okay. So I got I got two I got two things I'm thinking about here. If you spend all of your time right now helping providers navigate the system, what if they allowed everybody to do this just for one or two or fifteen people? It seems like a lot of work. Yeah, that that could be a lot of work. You might be right about that. It could be a lot of work. So what might be the alternatives? Maybe, who knows what, I, I don't know. Who knows what could be the alternative to helping people through it one by one? I don't know. If there is any sort of possible legislation in the future that could address that, I would hope that legislation, legislation and legislators listen to how much of an impact that would be if if we did have to help every single person through the software. Yeah. That'd be a, a, a that would be a big deal. Do you, um, I know the department of health. I mean, I won't even really ask you the question of like, where, what does the department of health or what do you think about this, you know, proposed legislation to allow any provider to recommend cannabis for 15 people? Cause I don't think you can take a position on that. Can you? I cannot as an employee of the Department of Health, but personally, just from my own background, my first goal would be obviously to give patients access to the treatment that they need. I would hope, um, just as a voter myself, you know, as a private citizen, that the legislature would recognize that that's what we're going for here. So how are we going to, how would they want, how would they envision that the Department of Health could best enforce a policy that gives a lot of people access while making it easy. I mean, and nobody wants something hard and that's not some sort of opinion from a professional. That's just, we don't want things to be hard. They shouldn't have to be this hard. So, so what's coming up, what's coming in store for 2021? What, uh, anything you want to talk about coming in store for there? Uh, anything that you know or want to share with listeners that way? Yeah, absolutely. So there are exciting things on the horizon for 2021. We've got seven new pharmacies that plan to open by the end of March. And on our website, we have an update email list. So you can sign up for that. You'll be the first to know um, when those are open. You'll also be the first to know when our home delivery begins. And that is really a a big step for our program because that means that people that are in areas that might not be able to access medical cannabis are going to be more likely to be able to access medical cannabis. So again, sign up on our website. If you want to know about that. Any idea when home delivery might start? I know that we are finishing up some of the outs- the very last outstanding software bugs that have to take place and get fixed before we launch that, but it will be soon. Very cool. It's going to be pretty cool for, for home delivery. That I, It's just going to blow the program up. Yeah. I like Well, one in, of the things rural that... rural areas especially. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that's most unique about our program is the pharmacy aspect. I personally, not and I'm biased, but I love that we have pharmacists, actual pharmacists involved in this process. And I do think that we stand out among other states because of things like that and home delivery. And the there's actually, in my opinion, there's not a lot of regulation about home delivery. I mean, obviously there is, but it is it could be so much more tightly controlled than it is. And this there's not a ton of hoops to jump through really 
for patients to get product. They just use the address on their file and that's where it gets delivered. And it's really not going to be, you know, as, as kind of crazy as you might think it would be in Utah to launch something like medical cannabis traveling down the road. It's not actually going to be that big of a deal. Of course, it's regulated, but the access is actually going to be pretty easy. So I'm really thrilled personally that that access is going to be there and it's going to come with professionalism. I think that's key. You know, if you want to build a program with integrity, in my opinion, that's key. I can't wait. Very cool. Awesome. A lot of people are eager for that home delivery, but uh, anything else, anything else coming up? I kind of interrupted you there with the home delivery. Anything else that you want to talk about for 2021 that uh, people might need to be aware of? Well, those are the two big things um, that I can think of. I always like to remind patients and anybody who wants to be involved with this program, whether you're a provider, a neighbor of a patient, a mother of a patient, uh, you have a voice and it can be heard in the legislature. Just this is me saying it personally, but this is how you influence medical cannabis law. And the if you want to be an active voice in this process, you have to at least say something. You know, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get dist- discouraged when you think your voice might not might not be being heard. I think a lot of people turn to an entity like the Department of Health to say, you should change this. But it's actually your senator and your representative who you'll want to reach out to. And your and the legislative session begins this month really soon. So get involved, watch the news, see what's going on there. Maybe reach out to lobbyist groups or your senator and representative and see how the law is working for you and what you think might need to be changed to make it better even. So that's the other thing I would say. It's on the horizon is there, and that session starts on the 19th. So it's coming up. Well, this has been great. I like, I, I am so grateful for you, Katie. You have done more work, frankly, for, for our patients I feel like sometimes, you know, I mean, you're integral in the in the care of Utah cannabis patients. So thank you very much. Happy to do it. And and it's providers like you and, and your clinic that work so hard to keep our program afloat. And you are also an expert in our system. So you have to give yourself more credit, too, about how you know how to use our software because it is hard to use. And we hear all the time about your patients. So we know that a lot of a lot of people are getting help through you guys. Thank you. Well, is there anything else, Chris, you want to bring up with Katie? I, you know, I don't think so. I mean, we got a lot of the big things covered. I mean, I think you said the important thing is to go sign up on your email so people can find out when these new pharmacies are opening up. Cause that's one of the biggest things I hear too, is like, people don't know when they're opening up. So it's like, Hey, you found right, out how you can hear right there. Are, when they're opening up, there's so much talk about St. George and where is it? And you know, when's it opening? And you know, nobody down there knows. But yeah, uh, I'm. We need to sign up on the uh, the Department of Health. Uh, what's the website address? The exact website address is medicalcannabis.utah.gov, and the email sign up is on every single page on our website. But if you go to the resources page and click on news, you'll get there fastest. Okay, cool. Very cool. And how can people? How can listeners like reach out to you if they wanted to connect with you, like an email address or anything, or? Is, yep, that is that something you can give away? Well, I'll give you our help desk. Okay, that, that <laughs> which works. Which is medical too. cannabis. It's medical cannabis at utah.gov. If you do want to talk to me, ask for Katie. I'll respond to you. Um, yeah, and that goes if you're a provider. If you have any questions about pharmacies, if you're not able to find it, just shoot us an email. Any questions about the law? Um, if we're able to answer, we will answer. 
Anything else you want to add or how can, uh, how can listeners get a hold of you, Tim, if they're interested to find out more about uh, medical cannabis or what you're up to? Well, uh, you know, utahmarijuana.org is our website and we have uh, a lot of the same, frankly, information that Katie talks about on the government, um, the Department of Health. We've, you know, we want to be a one-stop shop as well for people and patients to get all of this info about the EVS system and that sort of thing too. But if you want to become a patient or you have questions, you can reach out to us at utahmarijuana.org. And you can find out more about the podcast. All of our podcasts are going to be at utahmarijuana.org slash podcast, uh, which is kind of an exciting development for our community here in Utah, the podcast uh, community. Yeah, we wanted to create more of a little home for you. And speaking of that, call our voicemail line. It would be really cool uh, if you called, left a message. Nobody will ever pick up the voicemail number. But if you have any questions for Tim or myself or about the podcast or about cannabis in Utah, or if you're interested in coming on the show, whatever, that number is 385-215-9557. And like I said, nobody will ever pick that up. So call that number and leave a voicemail and we might even play it on the show. Uh, you can listen to my other podcast. I am Salt Lake podcast. I am saltlake.com. I do that podcast with my wife, Chrissy. We have a lot of fun getting to know uh, people in Salt Lake City. We just had a really uh, fun episode uh, with a gentleman who goes by the name of Bad Brad Wheeler. I don't know if either of you guys are familiar with Brad, but he's a great guy. He's got a great story, and uh, he's a, he's a, he's got he's got a lot of energy to him. So yeah, go, go and I love that check podcast. Out. Check it out. Anything else you want to add, Katie? Any any sign off you want to give for the listeners? Any any fancy sign off? Fancy sign off, man. Just check out our resources. We spend a lot of time on our website, so check out our website. We have the answers there. We have fact sheets. We have facts. We have a locate your provider page. And when in doubt, send us an email. Awesome. We got to get you back on the podcast, Katie. You're awesome. You're. Yep. <laughs> Thanks for coming but, on. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so for much. having me. All right, everybody. Stay safe out there.